2: Hello, my name's Dave. I'm the editor of BBC History magazine. I'm joined by my section editor, Rob Attar. Hello. Welcome to the first part of BBC History magazine's December podcast. Here's some previews of the delights coming up.
3: A critical thing to remember is that the Americans, when the war started, were certainly not aiming for independence.
2: Professor Stephen Conway will be telling us why he'd like to go back to the year 1775.
4: Um, Gold digging and um, dog-headed men.
2: That was Justin Morozzi detailing some of the extraordinary and exotic stories narrated by the father of history, Herodotus, in his Travelling Tales.
5: I mean, I think one of their complaints is that consumerism
2: has become a religion. That was Professor Mark Connolly, who will be telling us about the Victorian Christmas, shopping, and the creeping claw of commercialism.
6: All these subjects are explored in the current issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. We've got a great Christmas offer for you this month. Treat a friend, a relative, or even yourself this Christmas and choose from four fantastic books worth up to £20 when you subscribe today. You will also save 25% of the shop price. For more details, either have a look on our website or you can call us on 0844 844 0250 and quote the code POD1208 to ensure you don't miss out on this brilliant offer.
2: Excellent. And our website, of course, is com. Now, for our first interview, uh, Rob has been talking to Professor Stephen Conway and he's invited him into our time machine to find out which moment in history
6: he would most like to go back to. When and where would you like to go back to in our time machine?
3: I'd like to go back to the early months of 1775 And I think I'd like to go back to London to be present when the British Parliament debated various proposals that were put forward. To try and reconcile Britain and its American colonies, which were on the point of a serious crisis. I think many people in the early months of 1775 recognized that unless there was some reconciliation, bloodshed was not far away. And uh, it would be absolutely fascinating to have uh, had the opportunity to listen to some of the speeches that were made, putting forward proposals to try and head off ...this imminent conflict.
6: What kind of ideas were they putting forward? Well, there were three principal
3: proposals that came forward... One of which was actually adopted by Parliament and it was put forward by the First Minister, what we would now call the Prime Minister, Lord North. And Lord North effectively offered the Americans suspension of Parliament's right to tax the American colonies. Now, taxation of the American colonies had been the cause of the dispute, which had been going on, on and off since the end of the Seven Years' War in 1763. The most famous incident was the attempt by Parliament to impose a stamp tax on the American colonies in 1765. But for the 10 years thereafter, the issue of whether Parliament had the right to tax the American colonies was hotly debated on both sides of the Atlantic. And in February 1775, Lord North offered the Americans suspension of Parliament's right to tax the colonies if, in return... The colonial assemblies raised the money required for imperial defence and administration themselves. Now, this probably was never going to get very far because the Americans denied that Parliament had the right to tax and Lord North was not acknowledging that they had no right to tax. Far from it, he was saying they had a right to tax, but they wouldn't exercise it so long as the Americans raised the required money themselves. If the Americans failed to raise it, then Parliament could still tax them. Now, that was approved by a majority in the British Parliament, and it was the British opening position when uh, the conflict started. If there were going to be any negotiations, it would be on the basis of Lord North's proposal to suspend Parliament's taxation of the colonies so long as the Americans found the money themselves. Now, the other two proposals both failed, uh, and they failed because they were put forward by the parliamentary opposition, two different wings of the parliamentary opposition, which were, of course, in a minority, and therefore had very little chance of their proposals being approved. Lord Chatham had been William Pitt, the great war leader, in the Seven Years' War, in the middle of the 18th century, put forward a proposal in March 1775, which would have involved Parliament giving to an all-American legislature, a bit like the uh, Continental Congress that had been formed in America to coordinate resistance to the British. Chatham was willing to give to an all-American legislature, the right to raise taxes in America. But in return, he wanted that all-American legislature to guarantee a sum of money to be paid to the British Exchequer. And he also wanted the Americans to recognize Parliament's right to legislate for America in all other respects. So there was going to be a kind of divided sovereignty proposal. Parliament wouldn't tax America, but Parliament's right to legislate for America would be acknowledged by the Americans. That scheme had all of Chatham's Great reputation behind it, but it didn't win parliamentary support, and it probably would not have satisfied the Americans because they weren't looking for an all-American legislature. They were looking for quite simply a retention of the system whereby each of the colonies had local autonomy, their own local legislatures, their own local equivalents of parliament, were able to tax them and legislate for them. The American rebellion was, to a large extent, about the preservation of the local autonomy of each of the colonies. It wasn't the intention to create an all-American legislature. It wasn't the intention to create the United States of America. It was uh, the intention was to preserve the colonies in their existing relationship with Britain. The last scheme and the one that's the most interesting was put forward by the Rockingham Party's spokesman in the House of Commons, one of their chief spokesmen, Edmund Burke. And Edmund Burke put forward a proposal again in March 1775 that I think had it received parliamentary backing might well have satisfied American opinion. In a nutshell, Burke proposed that uh, there was a return to the status quo of 1763, before Parliament had attempted to tax the American colonies, he wanted Parliament to abstain from taxing the American colonies. He argued that it was impossible to change the Americans. The Americans were very committed to their own rights and their own liberties. They were numerous. They were unlikely to react to pressure. And you had to work with the Americans as they were rather than try and pretend they were something different. And he effectively wanted to see a repeal of all acts that the Americans were opposed to. And his reconciliation plan was very much one that was based on trying to meet American demands and to keep them within the British Empire that way. Now, it didn't receive the backing of Parliament, unsurprisingly. Opinions were very entrenched by the early months of 1775 it was unlikely to get um, parliamentary support but it was a great speech everyone who heard it apparently thought it was a great speech even if they didn't agree with it and it was a speech that showed a willingness to try and understand the american position that very few british politicians had demonstrated throughout the the crisis of the previous decade i suspect that if parliament Had shown a willingness to embrace what uh, Burke was suggesting, the Americans might well have been willing to come to
6: terms. By the sound of it, it could have changed the course of world history if it had worked.
3: Well, what it might have done, very interestingly, it might well have avoided a war. And once that war started, and the the shooting war between the American colonies and Britain started in April 1775, if that war had been avoided if, if there hadn't been a shooting war and if the two sides had continued to try and work out their differences without uh, violence, then it seems highly unlikely that there would have been uh, a declaration of independence and a complete breaking away of the rebel colonies to form the United States. A critical thing to remember is that the Americans, when the war started, were certainly not aiming for independence. If there were people aiming for independence, there were very, very few. Most Americans, I think, believed that using military means to defend themselves against what they perceived as British aggression was not a step to breaking away from Britain. It was part of a process that they hoped would lead to the overthrow of Lord North's government and the king calling in the opposition, the Rockingham opposition, of which, of course, Burke was a prominent member. And it may well be that the Americans hoped, even when they started the fighting part of the conflict, that... There would be a change of government. Lord North's government would be dismissed by the king. The king would turn to the Rockingham party. And in would come Burke's party, which would implement Burke's solution to the problem. In other words, it would seek to negotiate with the Americans and uh, return to the status quo before Parliament tried to tax the colonies and that the relationship would be repaired. Now, in reality, I suppose once the fighting starts, it's very difficult to see any way back. But it's clear that Burke's proposals pretty well matched what the Americans were looking for. I think they would have been proposals that they could have lived with and it may have secured their continued relationship with Britain because the Americans at that stage were still very committed to um, the British crown. They continued to claim that they were loyal to the crown and had no argument with the crown. Their argument was simply with the claims of the British Parliament to be able to tax the American colonies. So I think Burke's proposals offered a realistic way forward. The only problem was they were unlikely to get support within Parliament at a time when there was very little willingness to bend to the Americans and accommodate their position.
6: Do you think the British government just completely misunderstood the American position?
3: I think, interestingly, both sides misunderstood each other's positions. I think there's a great deal of misunderstanding and mutual incomprehension. They speak the same language, literally, of course, English, but they speak the same language in the sense they're both brought up in English constitutional traditions of liberty and representative Government, but they were clearly applied in different ways on the different sides of the Atlantic. And the Americans were very attached to their local assemblies, their equivalents of parliament, and they saw the British parliament very much like their own local assemblies dealing with local matters and not having any jurisdiction over them more generally. So they saw it as a kind of domestic legislature of Great Britain, not as an imperial legislature able to pass laws and levy taxes in the American colonies. Now, the British, I think, did not understand why the Americans could perceive of their parliament's claims as a threat to liberty. They found it inconceivable that parliament could be viewed as somehow threatening to the liberties of the king's subjects anywhere. So there is a kind of mutual incomprehension, I think, that lies at the heart of this crisis and ultimately explains the war.
6: The two sides almost stumbled into war, really.
3: Yes, I think so. I think that's right. I think uh, this is where Burke, I think, was very unusual in seeking to understand the other side's point of view rather than simply asserting the rights of parliament or, in the American case, asserting that parliament didn't have any right. He was trying to actually deal with the situation as it was rather than pursue to their uttermost abstract claims of rights. I think he was extremely unusual in seeking to understand the perspective of the other side. And and his speech, while well, it, it says some things about the colonies that are over simple and from the point of view of a modern historian, actually downright wrong, he does seek to understand why the Americans are so attached to liberty. And uh, he talks about the Protestant nonconformist conformist tradition that's so strong in the North. He talks about Americans as uh, very committed to understanding rights and laws. And he also talks about how in the South, the very fact that many white southerners owned slaves, African slaves, makes them all the more aware of what liberty involves. So he tries to understand the Americans. He's not necessarily approving of them. He's not necessarily saying that they're right, but he's saying if you don't try and understand where they're coming from, why they think like this, you're never really going to be able to reconcile them to the continuing connection.
6: What was Burke's position during the war? Burke's
3: position was actually very difficult because Burke wasn't in favor of American independence. His whole purpose was to prevent American independence by conciliating the Americans and keeping them within the British Empire. So he and the Rockingham night party, were very despairing, I think, when the war started and were very dejected when the Americans declared themselves independent. But gradually, they recognized that there was nothing that you could do about that. You had to accept that the Americans had made that choice. And Burke, very interestingly, was still convinced that although the Americans had formally declared themselves independent, they were still part of the extended British nation. As late as 1779, three years after the Americans declared themselves independent, he effectively said, well, how the Americans choose to organize themselves, uh, whether under our monarchy or as separate republics, doesn't really matter, they're still English. So Dirk never really entirely accepted that the political parting of the world had really brought about a complete breach in this transatlantic British nation. But I think to many Britons, the Americans had gone their own separate way And when they allied with uh, Britain's almost hereditary enemy, France, that, to many Britons, finished any idea of a transatlantic British nation. The Americans had clearly sided with the great enemy of Britain, France, and that
6: put them beyond the pale. That was the final straw for them.
3: I think so. I think the final straw in many ways is the Franco-American Alliance of 1778, which puts the Americans, in the view of most Britons, beyond the uh, family. It's no longer a kind of struggle against um, ungrateful and recalcitrant children who need to be coerced back into the family fold. It's now a war against a foreign nation.
2: Stephen Conway is Professor of Early Modern History at University College London. So that was interesting stuff, Rob. Now why don't you give us a roundup of the festive delights for history lovers this
6: month? Well, that's what I'll do. And first up, we've got the historic city of Norwich, which is making heritage a major part of its Christmas celebrations this year. They're going to be having a medieval Christmas market, they're having a historic Christmas fair, a heritage trail, and they're even having a concert by the medieval babes. Excellent, sounds good. And they've called the whole thing Norwich Christmas, well, Norwich Christmas, but they've only got one CH. You see how it runs on? mm mm-hmm. uh, Well, that's taking place anyway on the 3rd to 14th of December, and you can find out more by going to www.norwichchristmas.co.uk.
2: I understand. What's your second choice?
6: Well, secondly, we've got an exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum, which is called Magnificence of the Tsars. They've got some amazing costumes and other paraphernalia from the Russian Imperial Court, from the 18th till the early 20th century and you won't have seen lots of it in Britain before so it's a good opportunity to get to see some you know, some nice costumes and that kind of thing and that starts on the 10th of December
2: Right, and your final option?
6: Well my final uh, option is for people who don't fancy braving the winter cold why not stay at home and watch our TV pick of the month which is called After Rome, Holy War and Conquest It's presented by London Mayor Boris Johnson and looks at the complex history of Islamic-Christian relations It's a BBC Two documentary in two parts. The first one is currently scheduled for the 29th of November, but these timings can switch about, so please check your listings, guides, or, of course, sign up to our weekly TV and radio email.
2: Well, that sounds like a crepuscular delight, so thanks for that, Rob. Now, before we go on to the father of history, please indulge us for a brief advertising message.
0: BBC Audiobooks has just published a new CD called America, Empire of Liberty, Volume 1, Liberty and Slavery. The first part in a new Radio 4 narrative history series telling the story of America through the voices of those who were there, presidents, slaves, farmers and Indians. Empire of Liberty celebrates the American achievement in transforming from a British colony to a global superpower in under 200 years and evokes the sounds and colours of daily life from jazz to baseball in the movies. Volume 1 takes us from America's beginnings to the start of the Civil War in 1861. The series is written and presented by David Reynolds, a prize-winning Cambridge historian whose previous work for the BBC includes the 2008
7: TV series Summits. By 1550, the Spanish crown controlled the best bits of the Americas after one of the most spectacular land grabs in history. Spain's American empire proved immensely profitable. Its silver mines generated around a fifth of the Spanish monarchy's annual income, and this helped finance Spain's wars in Europe to expand its domains and roll back the Protestant Reformation. Many English Puritans hated Spain the way Cold War Americans loathed the Soviet Union, as a predatory superpower and an evil empire. This is the story of how the Spanish tried to get their hands on North America as well, and of how they were beaten back by the French and the British. During the first half of the 16th century, Spanish explorers probed the Florida Keys, the Mississippi Valley, the Great Plains, and the Gulf of California. But top priority was consolidating New Spain, a vast province covering present day Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. Then, early in 1565, News reached Madrid that French Protestants had established a settlement in what is now northern Florida, menacing the route of treasure fleets back to Spain. King Philip II commissioned Pedro Menendez, a trusted officer, to mount an expedition to conquer the Florida peninsula. Menendez was a fast mover. By the autumn of 1565, he'd founded his first town, San Agustin, and he'd done so with fanatical ruthlessness. The French Protestants had offered to surrender if he would spare their lives. But, as Menendez reported to the king, I answered they might give up their arms and place themselves at my mercy, that I should deal with them as our Lord should command me. They came over and laid down their arms, and I caused their hands to be tied behind them and put them to the knife. Convinced that the Protestants were followers of Satan, Menendez told the king, It seemed to me that to chastise them in this way would serve God, our Lord, as well as your majesty, and that we should thus be left more free from this wicked sect to plant the gospel in these parts and to enlighten the natives and bring them to allegiance to your majesty. Within a few years, Menendez had established garrisons all around the coasts of Florida, He'd also sent out expeditions further west in search of silver and others north up the Atlantic coast, hoping to extend Spain's economic tentacles all the way to the fishing grounds of Newfoundland.
0: This CD audiobook is on sale now from all good booksellers and is also available as a digital download. For more information on this title, visit our website www.bbchistorymagazine.com/bbcshop.asp.
2: Okay, and now let's hear from Justin Morozzi, who has spent the last few years trekking around the Mediterranean and Middle East with the ancient Greek historian Herodotus as his travelling partner. My first question to you is, who was Herodotus?
4: Herodotus is obviously popularly known as the father of history. He lived between roughly 490-425 BC, uh, which was the extraordinary time in Greek history, which is popularly known as the Golden Age. Um, so he had terrific sort of contemporaries like Sophocles, Socrates, Themistocles, Thucydides, obviously, his uh, historical contemporary. Uh, he was a terrific traveler, um, as well as being the father of history. He was a geographer. He was a great explorer um, and a terrific storyteller. And he traveled through much of the what was then the, the known world, through North Africa, the Mediterranean, and the eastern Mediterranean, Middle East. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wrote the world's first history book called The Histories.
2: And what was the nature of that book? What was he trying to do?
4: It was a very broad remit, actually, because it, although it's called The Histories, uh, you know, almost a third of the book is actually devoted to a survey of Egypt, where he ranges very widely from uh, history of agriculture, the Pharaonic dynasties, uh, necrophilia, uh, the source of the Nile, architecture, religion... Um, essentially, I think when he set out to write the histories, he was trying to explain what brought the Persians and the Greeks to come to this uh, calamitous war with mm. each other, the Persian Wars. But it was almost in the nature of the man. He was just too curious and too wide-ranging in his uh, intellect and interests to confine himself to that.
2: And do we know anything particular about the man himself, or do we simply know him through what he wrote?
4: It's very difficult to know, actually, a lot about him. I remember my when I first got out on my own journey, uh, ruining the words in my Penguin edition, which said something along the lines of few facts are known about the life of Herodotus, uh, which is sort of brief and very brutal. They're pretty much true. I mean, the first three words in the book um, are Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Um, and that, so that's almost the only thing we know about him, that he came from the ancient town of Halicarnassus which is the Turkish resort of Bodrum today. And after that, really, you have to do a lot of guesswork. Um, you can tell from the way he writes about certain places, obviously like Egypt, for example, and perhaps to a lesser extent Babylon, that, you know where he traveled. And we know the sort of dates between which he lived, so we know what was happening uh, to a greater or lesser degree in the Greek world um, during his life. Uh, he writes a lot about Samos, for example, and the monuments on that Greek island in the Aegean. Um, but, it's, it, it's a bit of, it, you know, it's a little bit hit and miss. You have to put the pieces together in a, in a puzzle, which is always going to be slightly speculative.
2: OK. Now, you've mentioned that he's got this moniker of, of being the father of history. Um, in, in your opinion, does he deserve that rather grand title?
4: I, I think he absolutely does, um, although the, the obvious caveat is that having spent the last four or five years with him, uh, I've become a sort of super pro Herodotian. Um, if you're in the Plutarch School, you'd call him the father of lies, and he has tended to be dismissed, particularly by historians over the years, as a bit of a fantasist uh, and a fibber.
2: Well, his stories are a little tall at times, aren't they?
4: But they are absolutely tall. You know, he talks about um, a dolphin rescuing a ship wrecked uh, musician called Arion, um, gold-digging ants, um, dog-headed men. Uh, yes, he, 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 let, he lets his sort of natural enthusiasm sometimes get the better of him. But more often than not, he also prefaces his stories with, you know, this is what I was told, don't, don't take my word for it, I'm just telling you what I was told. And so he sources a lot of the stories which are, which are told as well. Um, I think what is particularly interesting about him, though, these days, is that the sort of history he wrote um, is now really back in fashion. Thucydides, his, uh, you know, his great contemporary, was much more interested in confining his vision of history to kings, statesmen, wars, uh, and constitutions, and that, until probably the last hundred or years or so, has been what history was. But I think Herodotus has a much wider vision than that, which is the sort of vision that has returned to history, so that we study things like the history of uh, slaves, witches, women, uh, poverty in London, deviance in Victorian London, you know, the weird and the wonderful, which was very much Herodotus's canvas.
2: Sure. Okay, so the, the, the conceit of your book is, is to basically take Herodotus with you as a companion uh, on, a, on a journey around the Mediterranean and the Middle East. Um, I mean, what's, what's the point of that now? Is there, is there that much that you can see, that you can trace of this man who was alive uh, you know, over 2,000 years ago? Uh,
4: that's actually good. it's a very good question, and one of the great difficulties um, I found initially, um, and starting off, I thought, the most logical place, the, his hometown of Halicarnassus, Bodrum. Hmm. Um, obviously there 's very little left that dates back to his his time and, and the, the the earliest ruins you really find in Halicarnassus are those of the, the the mausoleum, the original piece of funerary architecture built by King morslos but Unfortunately, that dates to about seventy years after herodotus 's death or so. Um, so I found that the way I traveled with Herodotus was um, less sort of monumental for obvious reasons and more exploring various parallels and spotting the sorts of things that would have interested him. You know, that might have been an exorcism in Thessaloniki, um, a survey of the pyramids, one of the the few monuments that, uh, you know, do remain from his time, um, and looking at different ways of exploring things that would have interested in him. And I think one of the most uh, obvious examples of that would be, you know, the Iraq War.
2: Sure, because you spent, uh, how long did you spend in Iraq?
4: It was about uh, probably 18 months in all in all, and I've been going backwards and forwards since 2004. But I just suddenly discovered that, you know, originally the the idea was to go to Babylon, which Herodotus devotes about 10 pages to in the histories. But um, on arrival in Baghdad, I started seeing, you know, traces of Herodotus, or his themes, parallels with everywhere, particularly with that sort of clash of civilization and two cultures that just didn't understand each other.
2: You, you talked about Babylon, and you've written about Babylon and Herodotus for us in, in the magazine. Um, what, what did you see in Babylon that, uh, that survives from, from the age of Herodotus? Anything at all?
4: Babylon, in one way, was uh, a slightly sad and melancholy experience, having seen the, the, the very recent desolation and, and destruction caused by uh, coalition forces. Um, and Iraqi looters as well. Everyone blamed each other. The Poles blamed the Americans. The bl- Americans blamed the Iraqis. The Iraqis blamed the others. Um, so the original ruins from uh, Herodotus's time and earlier were in a very, very precarious state. And, um, you know, bulldozers had gone in to level helipads for uh, helicopters. Um, so that was pretty depressing. In a way, what was quite interesting as well was to see the Saddam-era restoration, which um, is generally dismissed by uh, archaeologists as um, Disney for a despot. But I suppose the point about that is that in 100 years' time, 200 years' time, there will be more of Babylon left for future historians and archaeologists to pour over. And Saddam fits neatly into that weird sort of Babylonian, um, Mesopotamian dictator mold.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate... You need indeed.
2: Justin Marozzi's The Man Who Invented History Travels With Herodotus has just been published by John Murray. And finally, it's December. It's Christmas time. There'll be mistletoe, wine, children singing Christian rhyme. As we record this in mid-November, I see the shops already in full festive swing. Many will decry the modern Christmas as nothing but a sour and sordid imitation of what the true festive season was once about. So Sue Wingrove has been talking with Professor Mark Connolly to trace how far back this commercialisation of Christmas goes.
8: Every year we hear the complaint that Christmas is becoming overly commercialised. No sooner are the kids back at school after the summer break than the shops start piling the shelves high with Christmas puddings and Star Wars clone trooper voice changers. It's been estimated that on average we Brits splash out over £600 each at Christmas time on presents, socialising and food and drink. And in 2006, the Archbishop of York warned that the spiritual values that many people rightly acknowledge at the heart of Christmas are subjected to an assault of materialism. Well, of course, we all agree and then dash out guiltily to buy a new DVD player and a few packs of mini-volavants. This year is no different. No doubt we'll be doing our duty and spending our way out of recession. But when did this link between Christmas and consumption first take hold of the nation? Well, we suspect the Victorians had something to do with it. Type Victorian Christmas Market into Google UK and you'll get 49,000 hits, such as the popularity of this nostalgic merchandising event. Well, in the current issue of BBC History magazine, Mark Connolly explores the origins of Christmas consumerism. Mark is Professor of Modern British History at the University of Kent and he joins me now on the line from there. Hello, Mark. Hello. Hello. Right. So what, when we talk about um, Christmas becoming commercialised, uh, what, what do we mean by that?
5: Um, well, I think it's intimately connected with the idea that the season has lost any connection with with the spirit, with people thinking of the Bible story first, with people thinking of the message of of God becoming man via the medium of a newborn babe. And if that is considered at all, it's as part of a Christmas card design and something that you'll be buying and you'll be hoping your friends will like on their shelf um, and, and so we've actually got the thing, you know, the wrong way round. We're, we're putting the cart before the horse um, because as we know from the Bible story, Christmas mm-hmm. is about the, the the giving and the receiving of presents but it's within a spiritual context and I think that's what obviously the Pope, Archbishop of Canterbury, various religious leaders um, are, are, are stressing at the moment.
8: Okay, so the um We've replaced religion with an orgy of consumption. Um, exactly, yes. yes.
5: And, and we've shifted from, uh, or you might say that all we've actually done is swapped a religion. I mean, I think one of their complaints, one of the things they're, they're, they're frightened of, is that consumerism has become a religion. You know, that we worship idols, we worship commercial tags, logos, things like that, um, and have forgotten One of the only reasons they're there is because of um, a a, a genuine religious message behind it. Um, The the, the Christian festival of Christmas has been hijacked um, in in order to present us with opportunities to empty our wallet.
8: Was it always thus, or when when did Christmas first start to become commercial?
5: the dear old Victorians that we associate with the rosiness of the modern Christmas you know when when everything apparently was warm and bright and deep and crisp and even there you were also by the same token exactly the same ones to start pouring money into it and to to begin um, the orgy of consumerism the crucial moment is what we often refer to as the second um, industrial revolution it's as Um, industrial processes move away from great primary things, you know, like extracting coal or or smelting iron, To what you can actually do with it, uh, and and can you produce things which are small and portable and enough people can buy? It's the factory age that really comes about from the 1850s, which I think creates the conditions for popular Widespread consumerism, which will embrace a much broader class section of Britain than it would do before 1850. So by the 1870s, many more people have got the opportunity to shop because they've got more disposable income, um, and also people are getting more time to shop because things like the working week are regulated more effectively than they had been at the start of the century. So. Uh, you know, you've created the conditions whereby more and more people can actually partake in a consumerist society and it's seen most strongly at Christmas because one thing um, that the Victorians were not um, slow at doing was recognising an opportunity to make a few bob.
8: Right, I see. So um, that, I think you say in your feature, is when the department stores first uh, first became yeah. big. Yeah, I think the department
5: stores are absolutely crucial to, to this. Um they are growing from the 1860s onwards. Um, they are exceptionally innovative in their desire to draw shoppers in and to ensure that they part with their money. Um, so from the start, the department stores are looking for vehicles to, to shift um, goods And they very quickly latch on to Christmas as an ideal moment. Uh, and, of course, they, they try to make the whole Christmas shopping experience as exciting, as enjoyable as possible by lavish decoration of the store um, and um, lavish provisioning of, of the store. You know, so, so they kind of literally drip like Christmas trees of um, everything you could possibly desire um, to make your, your Christmas jolly.
8: Indeed, and I'm just looking at uh, one of the pictures that we've used to illustrate the feature and it's a marvellous uh, group of Victorian ladies in their, um most of them wearing black uh, dresses with fur collars, um, standing in front of a lavish glass uh, plate window.
5: it's a tribute to the new art of window dressing which the department stores are are clearly keen on and obviously using other seasons and they're very into seasonal changes but most people um, will associate a uh, department store window with I think it's Christmas display. You know, that's the one where the short, uh, store managers were prepared to spend most, um, bringing carpenters and goodness knows what else, you know, to, to mock up castles and Santa's grottos and everything else like that. And um, as we know, to, to this day it's still a big part of many people's um, uh, festive season. One of the things they will do to mark the season as, as a special treat is either to go along themselves or more particularly to take their children to see the grand windows um, of, of some of the bigger department stores
8: and so was this when the santa's grotto as we know it was um was invented
5: absolutely yes yeah yeah late 19th early um, 20th century um department stores are realising that you can um, very quickly get the mars or governesses to part with their money if the children see the queue for Santa's grotto, so they will
6: right. want to stand
5: in line um, and, and of course um, but they almost encourage the line if, if there is a long line that proves it must be good right uh, the, the waiting <laughs> becomes part of the process I see
8: and I think you, you, you spoke, um, in, in your feature about the fact that sort of earlier in the nineteenth century, um, people did spend money on um, you know, food treats and drinks for themselves. But it was only later on that um the gift giving became a really big thing.
5: Uh, that, that, again, that's all to do um, with greater um, factory processes that, that are turn, churning out um, goods on a uh, on a much greater scale and therefore also on a much cheaper scale. So, um, you know, things that that uh, would have been given traditionally as gifts, things like um, uh, you know, male and female toilet sets, which which were um, uh, common um, exchanges, particularly between husband and wife, love, um, love, you know, those betrothed, in things like the late 18th, early 19th century. At that stage, they are vastly expensive um, and are the preserve of the rich. Um, but by 1860s, 1870s, you know, little things that we would now call vanity sets um, are relatively cheap to produce. They can be put in a nice flashy box for Christmas um, and more people can afford to, to um, buy them. So mm. the whole thing moves gear, whereas earlier in the century, um, the season for many people would have been marked much more by shopping for particular kinds of foodstuffs.
8: I see. Now, I'd just like to read you out something I I read earlier on the internet, and it's a a typical travel agent's advert. Step back in time at the popular Dickens Christmas Festival in uh, North Yorkshire, a yuletide shopping break not to be missed. Um, Now, this advert's clearly playing on our association of Charles Dickens with Christmas. Tell us about Dickens. How important was he? or, Or is that a myth that he sort of shaped our traditional Christmas?
5: He's not strong enough to invent a whole season by himself. So, rather, I think what he does is give voice to a general feeling in Britain, the Britain of the eighteen forties, which felt that because the world had changed so much, and I think this is a a real um, early Victorian phenomenon that perhaps. As we um, have got more and more used to technology changing so quickly, I think we take it in our stride for the Victorians, the, the early Victorians, there was something really rather scary about what had happened to the world. Time seemed to be telescoping. The world was changing so much. Well, it was, I think there's, a, there's a, a quote from one of Thackeray's novels or, or some interview that Sackery gave where he said, to think in my childhood, I used to go home in a stagecoach. That now seems like the age of the Druids. You know, it seems mm-hmm. ancient as that because it was the railway had uh, had arrived. So that, I think, creates a fair amount of, of kind of spiritual shock. Yes. And there is a real desire of people to root themselves. And, of course, one of the things that they root themselves in um, is the ancient, what they perceive to be the ancient traditions of Britain. Right. This gives them a, a path that survived the battering of the present. And Christmas has that nice thing. Of course, it is the moment where Christian time begins, where Mm -hmm. B B becomes AD. So for people obsessed with the idea that that time has speeded up or time has done some strange things for them, um, I think Dickens grabs hold of that and expresses it perfectly through a Christmas carol. People then read it, it becomes a crucial part of our culture. And in the end, we make the leap to believing that it's Dickens that invents it rather than Dickens being, say, the person sort of dragged along with that phenomenon and having the brilliance to give voice to it.
8: But going back to the consumerism, it wasn't long before some commentators became uncomfortable with with all of, of the materialism that they saw around them, was it?
5: Oh, absolutely. You're, uh, the Church um, is beginning to um, take notice of this, certainly by 1900, that there are fears, uh, not just within the Anglican Church um, in Britain, but also the uh, nonconformist churches the Catholic Church, uh, is noting it as well. Indeed, one of the reasons why clergymen from the late 19th century, are so interested in getting involved with, with things like Christmas Carol collections. There's an enormous amount of new Christmas Carol books, um, which of course culminates eventually in, in the early 20s with the Oxford Book of Carols, with, with the great Vaughan Williams being um, involved. And I think part of that desire is already to try and stamp or, or restamp a spiritual authority on the season. Um, uh, of course what tends to happen is publishers and such like just say oh Christmas carol books, they sell well, let's sell more of them Um, and and it gets subverted but there is um, that that definite desire is coming through Um, and uh, it's been stressed again in the 20s and 30s um, that there are um, complaints that it's become nothing but an orgy of consumerism so Mm. it certainly not long b- before there's a reaction against the spending.
8: Right. And um, one of the things that you talk about in your feature, which I thought was quite interesting, is there was some sort of link between the celebration of Christmas and um, and patriotism.
5: Well, I think that's intimately connected with Britain as the first industrial nation, um, Britain as the first you know, fully urbanised nation and therefore the home of a never-expanding empire. This means that by the 1850s, the British are pretty sure, um, and it's been evolving really since the 18th century, that they are God's chosen people. You know, that they and God have something um, pretty cosy going on. Um, And therefore, the moment when the Christian God is born, seems perfectly you know, this is a truly British celebration um, that the Brits are there to spread Protestant Anglo-Saxon culture across the world God is clearly smiling on that um, uh, showing British success everywhere and so Christmas and patriotism come together and there's this belief as well that the Ancient English, um, and it's often associated actually with English rather than Celtic customs. English midwinter stroke um, Christmas um, uh, festivities are the heart and soul of what makes the English people great. What has actually powered on their success? So the, the two go hand in hand, and, and of course, it becomes even more important after the Great War when okay. Britain um, takes on Palestine as a mandated nation, and then the BBC gets its imperial service going um, uh, and its world service, which means that there is a famous um, obviously, there's a mnemonic the famous Christmas Day address, but mm. there's also around the Empire Christmas link up occurred, right. and it with the bells of Bethlehem, so the place where Christ is born you know, is brought to the world via the British, via the Glory okay, Empire. Yeah, indeed.
8: So you and you mentioned the um, the First World War there. Um, presumably, this orgy of consumption had to of consumerism had to slow down a bit during the um, during the World Wars.
5: It, it certainly does but particularly, uh, I mean, in the Great War, it slows down really in 1917 when the war really begins to bite on most people. But Still, there there you will see um, adverts in the newspapers. Uh, people are meant to feel better about their spending if they're sending it to loved ones at the front. So you will see lots and lots of adverts. You know why? Why not send your Jack at the front a a huge um, hamper from us this Christmas, so he gets a nice plum pudding while he freezes his toes off somewhere in France. Yeah. So um, uh, it's very cleverly turned round. Certainly, that first Christmas of nineteen fourteen. Fulton and Mason, you know, push their hampers hugely, and and indeed tons are sent out by the rich to the officer class on the Western Front. Um, So things will will have to scale down a bit um, by 1917, it will all flow again. By the 1920s, in the Second World War, um, obviously things are, are curtailed hugely. But the state, um, certainly via things like the Ministry of Information, tends to try to instruct people how they can have a merry Christmas, but within very, you know, ration-confined limits. Mm. Sitting there um, like Oliver Cromwell, you know, being very puritanical about it. Um, in fact, it's regarded as very important for morale that Christmas is celebrated fully. Uh, and, and so um, there's a great deal of um, uh, government literature is produced each Christmas about how you can have a Merry Christmas, but you know, in, in a fairly um, contained way.
8: Yes. And um Afterwards, the spending began again, I presume, after rationing was lifted.
5: Oh, indeed. 1950s, you know, um, Howard Macmillan, you've never had it so good. Once the British people can start spending, they are told to spend, spend, spend. Um, In some ways, um, just generally, it is seen as the... British people giving themselves a the pat on the head for coming through the Second World War. They're at last reaping the benefits of their sacrifices, uh, and, and Christmas becomes a huge part of that. And then once commercial television gets going in the mid-50s, um, um, there, there is, again, uh, immediately advertisers um, mm. um, see this fabulous medium as, as a way of flogging um, things for people at Christmas. Um, So so television will become crucial to to the commercialisation of Christmas or or the increasing speed of the commercialisation of Christmas.
8: So Mark, thank you very much for talking to us. Um, Now you can read more by Professor Connolly in his book Christmas, A Social History, published by IB Taurus and of course in his feature in this month's BBC History magazine.
2: Mark Connolly is Professor of History at the University of Kent. His book, Christmas, A Social History, was published a few years back, but his feature on the Victorian commercialisation of Christmas appears in the December issue of BBC History magazine, which is a cracking read. And we also have a special Christmas crossword, and a festive quiz for all you Yuletide lovers. And for further Christmas jollity, do listen in to our second podcast this month, which will be a fest- festive quiz hosted by Sue and historian Justin Pollard.
6: Now don't forget that you can subscribe to BBC History Magazine and save 25% on the shop price. Call us on 0844 844 0250 or go online at com and quote the code POD1208 to take part in this fantastic offer.
2: That's it for this month. If you want more history, I do implore you to buy the magazine or visit our website www.bbchistorymagazine.com where you can sign up for our new weekly History on TV e-newsletter. And do look out for the second site of this month's podcast, which will be released on the 12th of December and will be, as I say, a festive historical Christmas quiz as I won't be joining you for that let me take this opportunity to wish you a splendid Christmas and a happy new year